Welcome to another sustainablewineblog.com podcast with me, Toby Webb, and I'm delighted that joining me in this podcast is Dave Powell from Powell & Son. Um, If you don't recognise the name Powell & Son, you may, if you know your wines, particularly your Australian wines, you may recognise Dave's name uh, from the fine brand of Torbrec, uh, which you used to make, Dave. So before we start, I would like to thank David Harvey from Rayburn Wines uh, for setting this up. But um, Dave, before we talk about Powell & Son, why don't you just give us a quick overview of your career so that uh, those of us who've heard of your work at Torbrecht can think about where you came from and where you are today. Sure. Well, I mean, I always say to people, I'm a winemaker because I make wine, but I'm not an enologist. I um, studied economics at university for, quite badly for a while and then realised that wasn't for me and basically ran away to the wine business. And I was lucky enough to have some great mentors over the years. And the last of them was... Um, Robert O'Callaghan from Rockford in the Barossa Valley where I was working when I first started Torbrick. And then of course after being at Torbrick for 20 odd years that I started with Callum's mother, um, I left in in a circumstance I'd rather not go into, but the silver lining to the cloud was the fact that I started a business with my older son, hence Powell and Son. That's Powell and Son. So um, what are the wines you're making now? Just talk us through. We've had a few of them here over lunch and I should say listeners, we're at 67 Pall Mall in London, and they they, struck, they tried to find us a private room, but um, we struggled. So <laughs> you will hear a bit of background noise. Um, but Dave, just talk us through the wines you're making now with with Pall and Son. Sure. Well, we we have two suites of wines. We first of all said to ourselves that we wanted to create somewhat um, maybe ambitiously, and we might say arrogantly, a, a version of Dana Romney Conti in the Barossa Valley. So we wanted to pick some incredibly great sites, make single vineyard wines, very terroir driven, really to let people know what the Barossa could really do at its very best. But then at the same time have a suite of uh, regional wines that are also more affordable and really talk about what the Barossa Valley, or the Barossa I should say, which is the Barossa Valley and including the Eden Valley, actually does um, on a day-to-day basis. So we had a conversation um, over lunch about are you new style, are you old style? There was this style of Australian wine, particularly with Syrah, Shiraz, where it was kind of big fruit forward wines that really ch- kind of changed the game in many ways compared to the, to the old world wines. How would you describe your new style? Well, somewhere in between. I mean, I, I worked, start, started working the Barossa back in 1981, so when I think of old style Barossa, I think of the wines that Robert O'Callaghan made and the boys at St. Hallett's and so on back in the day. So the things that a lot of people were making and that probably Robert um, Parker made famous were those big sort of super ripe styles but I like to think I never made those wines at Torbrecht but it doesn't change the fact that when um, Callum came home to go to university after spending best part of a year with uh, my very dear friend John louis at um, Charve in Hermitage we talked about making wines that were a bit fresher and had a bit more vibrancy to them and perhaps trying to make sure that the wines weren't so big and so ripe that they didn't overpower the varietal characters and the terroir characters in the wines. Right, so just give us a, a brief overview of where you're getting your grapes from at the moment. So you're, you're, you're leasing land, you're working with growers, yep. and you've got a variety of different heights around the Barossa yep. Valley, is that right? Well, we started, uh, when I left Torbrecht, I had a large percentage of the grower list wanted to come with me, but we really wanted to, I certainly wanted to, and Callum, after spending his 12 months with Jean-Louis, who was, a, if you like, a vigneron's vigneron, we decided we wanted to only work with vineyards where we, we worked the land ourselves. So we leased the vineyards, um, the rights to actually buy the vineyards in, in uh, time to come. And we wanted to make wines from the Brossa Valley, but also have as much of an influence on the higher and cooler Eden Valley, which is the, the, the neighbour 
um, Appalachian, if you like, which is part of the Greater Barossa, and so therefore make wines from both these two regions just to show that even though they were very close, the wines could be quite dramatically different. And classically, the Barossa uses a lot of um, well, use a lot of different grapes or a few different grapes in blends. Mm-hmm. You're making some single vineyard wines. Talk to us about those, and particularly about your what you call Mataro, which we would yep. call Mavedra wine. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we do make some blended wines. Now, regional wines, are, 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 some of them are blended, but at the same time, if you get very, very good vineyards, you can make single vineyard wines. Um, oh, there's a motorbike, if you didn't recognise that, folks. Um, if you, uh, you know, Mataro is obviously what people in this part of the world perhaps refer to as Mavedra. Um, it's something that I've always been a big fan of. In general, yes, it's a great blending variety, particularly with the Grenache and a bit of Shiraz and a more Chateauneuf style, if you like. But I think if you get quite an exceptional vineyard that we have, um, are lucky enough to have access to, you can make something really quite special. So that's why we wanted to make it a, a single vineyard wine, a single varietal wine, to say to people, this is what the variety can do under the best circumstances. So what do you think about your influences, particularly with the wines you're making now? We've talked about Chave. Who do you admire in, in winemaking today? Uh, well, look, any good winemaker, quite frankly. I, you know, I, I, I get influenced by you know, German winemakers, by Italian winemakers. I mean, anybody that's making great wine that has a sense of place. And I think you know, that's the sad thing these days. We talk about new wines, this whole natural wine trend, all these wankers making all this crap that doesn't look like fucking anything from anywhere. It annoys the shit out of me. So as far as I'm concerned, you want to have wines that have a sense of place. So any winemaker that's making two different wines, wherever they're from, I'm inspired by it. In saying that, obviously being uh, in the Barossa Valley, the people that have inspired me the most are Rhone producers, and I was lucky enough many years ago in my younger days to meet a lot of these people and get to know them and understand their philosophy, which is exactly the reason why I sent Callum, you know, some years, decades later, to spend the best part of a year with Jean-Louis, to understand what that really meant and to get influenced by the same philosophy that I had been. OK, so let's we'll come on to talk more about natural wines in a minute. But let me start <laughs> in, a, in a broader way. And, you know, you don't sit on the fence, Dave. Tell us what no, you really No, I don't. I, I, trust me. <laughs> um, but, um, and I love natural wine, by the way, real natural wine. Okay. In fact, in Australia, back in Torbrook days, 20 years ago, I made a wine called the Natural Wine Project with nobody in Australia knew what the fucking natural wine was. I only stopped doing it because I got so sick of the whole natural wine thing being hijacked by all these wankers with fancy moustaches that I got sick of it and decided not to do it anymore. So we'll come back to the fancy moustaches and heads yeah. to beards in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's start in a broad And this is a, this is a 55-year-old man with a ponytail sitting here right now. <laughs> Listeners, you don't know it that. It must pretty bad know. in that case. There you go. <laughs> so um, when you hit, Dave, when you hear the term sustainability, right, mm-hmm. which is a field I work in and mm-hmm. other areas that mm-hmm. kind of helps me do this wine blog, yep. it's a weird term that doesn't translate into certain languages, but it's created this whole industry of change. What does it mean to you? What do you think of I, it as I don't. I think it gets over-complicated. I mean, s- sustainability to me is pretty self-explanatory. I mean, it's really just a case of working with the earth and not basically putting so much crap into it that you're detracting from what you're taking out. And there's no doubt, none of us in, in the modern day and age can deny the fact that as human beings, we're, we're putting too much pressure on the earth and, and whether it would be the, the, the world as a, the earth as a, as a planet or whether it be a small patch of vineyard or patch of dirt where you're growing anything, that we have to be aware of the fact that we have an accumulated effect with what we do. So we need to be aware of that. Need to, you know, and someone like me, I'm, I'm, you know, I've created a business with my son that hopefully his grandkids and great-grandkids when I, you know, long dead and buried, or hopefully mulched and spread on the vineyard in my case, um, we'll still be farming. So I think it's incredibly important the way we, we look after these things as, as custodians rather than seeing ourselves as perhaps the owners of this, this, this okay. wonderful vineyard. So it's a term that makes sense to you despite its kind of vague 
vague um, sounding structure of the, the yeah. word, if you like. But you're also using biodynamics in your wine. So talk us through that. And I'd also like to hear about what the average Australian winemaker thinks about biodynamics, because it, 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 it's not a term I heard about that much in the past. No, in, it's, it, in, Australia, it's, uh, in Australia in the last 10 years, it's changed quite dramatically. There's a lot of biodynamic producers these days, or people aspiring to be biodynamic producers. The most famous, of course, would be Vanya Cullen, who makes some great wines, and Cullen and Margaret River. Um, I think biodynamic farming's great. I think some of it gets a little bit too almost spiritual. And my biggest problem with biodynamic farming, even though one of our vineyards is farmed biodynamically, is that I actually feel in some ways it's almost too good, which might sound like an odd thing to say, but, and I'm talking about with red grapes. White grapes, I think you probably make better wines. With red grapes, you have to be a bit careful that you're not too kind to the vineyard. Is that because you, the land is, the land's not struggling enough and then biodynamics um, gives it too much of a kick? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think grapevines should stress, but they need to work hard. They need to get into low gear just coming up to the last, after Verizon getting into the last part of the heart ready for harvest and they need to get down to low gear and do some work and I, I have a strong suspicion and I must admit I'm not being a scientist I can't prove this but I have a strong suspicion from my own observations that you have to be a bit careful that you're not too kind to things and biodynamic farming I think in some ways is a little bit too kind. In saying that I'd rather the discipline and people caring about the land they work and farming biodynamically yeah. than not giving a shit and spraying all sorts of nasty crap. So, yeah. so it really know. depends on the soil and the landscape you're working with. Yeah absolutely, absolutely and the philosophy of the person that's growing the grapes. I mean I think um, biodynamic farming is great, and I said the discipline of it is great. Some of it I'm, I'm not sure I agree with. Which but, bits do you disagree with? Well, some of the stuff with the, some of the preparations and how they're prepared and all that sort of stuff, I'm not completely convinced of the, the reasoning they give for some of the stuff, but certainly when you talk about working with phases of the moon and all this sort of stuff, I mean, I don't, I struggle to see how people don't understand how that works. When we all, we all accept the fact that the, the moon drags around the ocean because it's the sixth sense of the Earth's surface, but for some reason we can't accept that they'll actually affect the plants that we grow and the food that we eat, let alone ourselves as human beings. So your issue might be with the sort of homeopathic nature of some of the preparations. Given that homeopathic medicine is not really based in science, is that the nature of your suspicion? Well, to a certain extent, although you've got to remember I'm not a scientist, so I'm certainly not looking at this from a scientific point of view. Cross, I couldn't make more noise if they tried, could they? Oh well, we'll just keep going, we'll keep going. Uh, um, so at the end of the day, I... Um, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought there. I would rather, as I said, people look at it from that point of view, even though I'm not completely convinced and because there's not a lot of science involved in it, but I would still rather people make that go that extra yard and, as I said, the discipline of it, I'd rather they do that than not do it at all. Okay. So it's a bit of a trade-off, I think, in a way. Yeah, and I think, yeah, as you say, it's very land-dependent. Some land needs it more, some land needs it less. Some grapes will benefit from it, some perhaps will be... And I do think in general... Yeah. <coughs> excuse me, I do think in general that it's probably in some ways better suited to, to white grapes than red, but once again, it's very much a site-specific thing as well. Okay. A couple more questions before we finish up. Um, I've got to hear you vent a bit more about natural wines. <laughs> um, so let's get this straight. You were one of, the, one of the earliest purveyors of this in that you did a, a natural wine, as you mentioned earlier in your career. What happened? What went wrong with the natural wine, wine movement for you? You just got a bit too wanky? Oh, it became or? trendy, yeah. And there's, you know, I think a lot of, a very dear friend of mine, his name is in the US, described the new natural wine movement these days, especially the young winemakers in this genre. 
as being similar to people that like punk music. Because let's face it, most of us know that probably apart from The Clash, most punk music was absolute shit. But it annoyed the fuck out of our parents. And I think a lot of the natural wine making stuff these days is more about annoying the establishment than actually being about making real wine. My problem is, is that when they talk about their hands-off approach, they're so hands-off approach that they're quite lazy and the wines are made badly and they have no sense of place. And that's the great thing about wine as a beverage, other than most beverages, it has a sense of place and what it was made from, where it was made, rather than being just some beverage in a bottle, you know? Yeah, yeah I've heard that, that criticism of being lazy winemaking has been leveled. Absolutely, wine absolutely. Before. Just leave it, well, you wouldn't invite people around for dinner and leave a load of ingredients in the kitchen yeah. and just hope that they magically yeah, yeah, made themselves absolutely. dinner. It's just ridiculous, it's silliness. Okay, well, let's move on from that. It's water. just become a badge of honour, but at the end of the day, you yeah. know... A trendy label. I, well, I was hoping it was a trend. It seems to have been. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit concerned about, you know, particularly these wankers like the, the, the restaurant Noma in Copenhagen and those fucking assholes and all the silly bullshit they get into. I'm a bit concerned that it's become more than a trend and it's actually de- de- taking root. And there's a whole generation that thinks that's what wine should be. Yes. And that disturbs me. To me, fine wine, well, fine wine, I'm, I'm probably making a quite dis- strong distinction there, should be wine that can age and still, as I said, have that sense of place. Oh, I think you're absolutely right, it is taking on. I mean, I've been working on and off in Shoreditch for over 20 years, last 10 years or so in Shoreditch, trendiest part of London, everybody was wants to talk about high acidity, biodynamic and natural wines that don't have any aging potential, so I'm with you there. Let's move on to talk about um, climate change. Obviously in Australia, along with lots of other countries, harvests have, I imagine, come forward, yep. alcohol's going up, sunlight hours are increasing, volatility in weather, I imagine, is increasing, tell me if I'm wrong. What can you do as a winemaker, as someone who works with growers, someone who leases vineyards, what can you do in the vineyard and maybe even in the winery to try and mitigate against the challenges of climate change? Luckily, climate change is, I'm a firm believer in climate change, but climate change is a long-term proposition, so I'm more worried about Callum's children and grandchildren, more importantly, than I am perhaps about myself. I think a lot of the things we're seeing these days is more about longer-term weather patterns that we don't understand. It doesn't change the fact that the climate change is happening. I think for us, in Australia in particular, it's more about water management particularly in dry growing vineyards, so we have to make sure we have virtually no competition for the water available for the vines, a lot of canopy management and things like that. Once again, of course, though, we're lucky in the sense that in the Brossel we work with quite thick-skinned varieties like Grenache, Shiraz, Mataro. Um, it's exactly the reason I don't make Riesling in the Barossa Valley. I don't make Pinot Noir in the Barossa Valley. I make Riesling up in Eden Valley that's 250 metres higher and cooler and more rainfall. So it's more about making sure, you know, what you're making and where you're making it. As I said, I think climate change will affect things eventually, but I think it's probably a lot further away than some of us think. You know, we last vintage we had one of the latest vintages we've had for a long time. So, which that would, and that's of course all these dickheads that say climate change is not happening use a vintage like that to, to use yeah, that yeah. as an example. Well, it's and in fact, it's just down. these yeah, it's just yeah. these patterns that, that, that don't un, you know that we don't understand so much. But what about alcohol? Though? I mean, as a winemaker, you must be getting concerned once it hits sixteen percent. You know. Well, I've, I've never made 16% alcohol wine, so I don't really know. But if it's heading I, towards that way, it must be a concern. Uh, well, the highest alcohol wine I've ever made was 15.4 back in the day at Torbrick. Oh. Um, all of our wines, the, the Powell and Sun wines, are between 14 and 15. A lot is of that, that stable at the moment? Is it sort of staying at that level? At the yeah, moment? pretty much. I mean, but once again, you're talking about canopy management and crop management, the vineyard, the balance between the amount of leaf cover and the amount of crop you've got. Mm-hmm. I've also found that, interestingly... Um, Alcohol is surprisingly volatile at fermentation regime temperature between 25 and 30 degrees Celsius for our reds. 
And because we ferment everything in open-top fermenters, we actually drive off a lot of alcohol okay. um, during the fermentation. It's a bit like if you're making a, a bolognese or something and you pour some wine in it or yeah. any cooking you, and you drive the alcohol off you with the heat. Off the water, and yeah. now, obviously, it's not the same temperature as that, but it, yeah. it's surprising how much it actually does cook off the alcohol. How widespread is that practice? Is that just you? or Well, what, funnily enough, once again, it's actually become quite uncommon, whereas once upon a time it was the way people made wine because it's quite labour intensive and quite slow and all the rest of it. People these days, of course, get into much more modern equipment. Yeah. Um, but I, I learned that... sort of sealed tank scientific Yeah, approach, yeah, yeah. All where, that, that's where exactly, everything's measured to the nth degree. And, that's you know. exactly right. And I think that... And it's for making some wines, absolutely. And particularly if you're wanting to, you know, in the cooler part of Australia, for example, wanting to make Shiraz, then you want to have extended maceration on the skins and all that sort of stuff, well, then you need those sort of uh, fermentation vessels. But for the sort of wines we make... Open fermenters and pumping over twice a day, we can we can reduce it. I, I did quite substantial trials when I was at Torbrick, and we learnt that on average we were getting 1.3 degrees less alcohol yield mm-hmm. on the open ferment vessels than we were on closed ferment vessels under trial. <laughs> and no effect on taste. Well, yeah, well, yes, because I mean, the, the, the lower alcohol quality, wines were more. Taste, well, yeah, well, yeah, but the the alcohol would overpower the, the taste. Yeah, yeah. So if you get the lower alcohol, then the, the fruit characters the fruit will come through, through more importantly on the wine. Yeah. And of course the wines don't seem hot and, and so on like they would do. And the tannins don't seem as aggressive as they would do when there's more alcohol. So I think it's important to think about the way you make the wine as well. Yeah. But I've never picked, I, I go into the vineyard, I, never, I don't own a refractometer. I'm not interested in what the sugar level is in the grapes. Yeah. Sugar has nothing to do with grape nonsense. It fascinates me. I always say to people, the reason grape wines accumulate sugar is so that an animal or a bird will come along and eat the grape, the flesh, go away and defecate the seed and, then, and reproduce. And that will happen from 8 bone may through to 30 bone may when the fruit falls off the vine. So sugar has nothing to do with grape rottenness whatsoever. So the fact that most winers are 14 half bone may we've got to pick it is absurd. That's to me, absurd. Why does that myth exist then? Why do people think that's the case? Ah, oh, because of wankers like Brian Crozer that it's all about the science, you know, the numbers don't lie sort of crap, you know what I mean? It's just ridiculous. Otherwise, why would somebody in the Rheingau not pick fruit the same as we do in the Brosser compared to someone in Chablis? I mean, it's just absurd. It's just ridiculous. So it's all about taste and physiological yeah, so rights. Too, too, many, too, many, too many metrics, too much science is perhaps overtaken. Well, and that, yeah, and in the new world... Australia and California, science has been important and that's why there's been a lot of new world winemakers working in the old world, particularly big co-ops on time to help them clean up their act. But you don't want to be, you don't want to let the science become your master. You know, Callum's just spent four years at university and I've said to him, mate, it's good for one of us in the family to have that complete understanding of science, which I admit I don't have. But at the same time, you don't want to be driven by that. You have to realise it has its place, but it's not the be-all and end-all. And that's, I think, a problem when you get to that stage. Look, if you're making commercial wines, absolutely, that's a different ballgame. I couldn't do that if I wanted to. Well, that's just crap wines. Who cares? Well, yeah, but they're actually pretty good wines considering the crap fruit they work with. So I've got to give it to these guys that make this sort of stuff. It's amazing what they actually do consistently considering the the vineyard sources and the fruit sources they have to deal with. But I couldn't do it to save my life. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't do it. I, I don't have the ability to do that. Well, I've been tasting your your 2016 wines today, Dave. But I have to say, magnificent. Well done. Um, so, if if listeners want to buy your wines, and I know your production is very limited at the moment, yep. they should uh, contact David Harvey from Rayburn Fine Wines. Absolutely. To set that up. Um, and it just remains for me to let you get to your next meeting, Dave. Thank you so much for your time, listeners. I hope you've been able to hear this throughout the background noise and. Um, Huge thanks to Dave Powell from Powell and Son. Check out their wines and check back to the blog soon for more podcasts. Dave, thank you. Cheers, mate. Pleasure. Thank you.